All right, well, let me just pray. So this is the Truth Walk class. Glad you guys could be here. Uh, third and fourth Sundays every month. So next time, I think it's Bill Davis teaching on spiritual disciplines. So in January, we'll try to, we try to announce it, you know, every month. But then, you know, I know it's something new. Uh, hey, come on in. Come on in. Good afternoon, Pat, right? Hey, we got some great seats up front. There's a handout and then index cards. So if you have any questions. So I was just saying there's a truth walk every month here in the church office, third and fourth week. So next month will be uh, Bill Davis on spiritual disciplines. So this is the book of Revelation. So if you weren't here for the book of Revelation and you're like, oh, I'm stuck. Something I wasn't expecting to, you know, for an hour. You can, you can leave now. I will not be offended. So let's, uh, let's pray. Is the church open? Church is open. So, yeah, <laughs> let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for this Advent season. We thank you for the coming of Christ. And as we look at the other side of that, the return of Christ, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to see the beauty and the glory uh, of, of our Savior's return and that that would help us to be more faithful to you. Uh, and that would help us to live greater lives of holiness and faithfulness, and that we would endure with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so uh, make sure you have your Bibles. We're going to be flipping through there, reading. Uh, like I said, there's no Q&A today, but if you have a question, write it on an index card with a pen, turn it in to me, and then we'll do Q&A first thing next week. So this is a two-part class this Sunday and next Sunday. Um, so as you, you know, grab your Bible, start, you know, flip over to the book of Revelation. And as you guys do that, just a little background. So what I'm about to teach you, it's from a seminary class I took at Westminster uh, with Dr. Poitras. I don't have any original ideas. I stand on the shoulder, shoulders of giants. And I've simply taken that course and repackaged it. Uh, and what we're going to do, the, the format is we're going to be looking at Revelation. We're going to take turns uh, reading from uh, this book. And, pe- you know, it'll be... Uh, participatory so you guys will get a chance uh, to read passages as well uh, throughout this class so um, so we'll start us off we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 so could someone read Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 and read it nice and loud hopefully it'll get picked up by the recording blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near Right. So, so Revelation is one of those books, you know, all of Scripture is profitable, right, suitable so that we can be equipped to know God's will uh, and to be competent to carry out what he wants. But Revelation actually carries this promise at the beginning, a, a special blessing for those who read it, understand it, and keep what, is, what it is written in there. So, so by, just simply by being here, I believe the Lord's going to bless you because you're eager to learn more about this last book of the Bible. Uh, the book of Revelation, it's a challenging book in many ways, but it's not complicated. Right? It's, uh, by challenging, I mean it's easy to get hung up on specific questions. and You can get hung up on these things and lose the forest for the trees. You can lose the big picture. But the big picture is important as you get to parts that are difficult to understand, areas where Christians have debated and aren't exactly sure what they mean. And that's, that's normal, right? Because a lot of this is it's prophetic literature. It hasn't happened yet. So... 
uh, it's understandable that Christians might not exactly agree on, on how these things are going to take place. Uh, you've got to keep the big picture in mind. And the big picture is this. Christians are called to endure because Jesus has the final victory. Heaven is certain and all evil will be destroyed. Christians are called to endure because Jesus has the final victory. Heaven is certain and all evil will be destroyed. That means there's certain parts of the book, just don't get too hung up on them, right? There's the locust plague in Revelation chapter 9. Right? I mean, a lot of people are wondering, what does that mean? Are those helicopters you know, that's, that's, that are descending in, in this warfare? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Or even the millennium in Revelation chapter 20, you know, the thousand-year reign of Christ. The millennium is only one half of one chapter in the book of Revelation. Right? It's 22 chapters, but only half a chapter is devoted to it. So if you spend all your time debating, thinking about, like, what is that millennial kingdom exactly? And the Christians have spilled a lot of ink debating what that millennial kingdom is. You're kind of, you've kind of lost a sense of proportionality, what the overall book is about. Or even the number 666, right? I mean, isn't that an intriguing, you know, the number of the beast? Some people have said, you know, it's your credit card number, maybe it's a, your social security number, you know, some way that the government is going to take control over you. I mean, maybe it's those things, maybe not. I believe we'll, we'll actually talk about that that one. So, so the main thing is there are difficult things, but it's... Uh, you know, but if you keep the big picture in mind, you won't get lost. You, you'll, you won't lose the trees. Um, you'll lose the forest for the trees. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. So this is, this is again, the big picture. This is where all of human history is headed. Chapter 5, 11 through 14. If someone has it, just read it with a nice, loud voice so we can pick it up on the recording. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessed, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Thank you. So that's if you that's where what Revelation is about. Right? The King Jesus Christ exalted to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, glory and might forever and ever. So don't get caught up in the locust numbers, specific numbers, the millennial kingdom. I mean those are important. We should talk about them, we should study them. But you gotta keep the big picture in mind. And Christians throughout history they they taken different interpretive strategies for the book of Revelation. And there's many different ways to read it, many interpretive grids. Uh, I'll mention three specific ones. I think each of them brings something helpful to the table. The problem is if you take one of these three and say that is the only way to interpret the book of Revelation, then you miss out. 
So revelation is multifaceted. It's like a diamond, and you need to look at it from multiple angles throughout history. So the first uh, interpretive strategy is what I'll call the it's it's called the preterist view, preterist, or I'll call the Roman Empire view. That's the idea that uh, you know revelation was essentially fulfilled during the time of the Roman Empire. You look at the persecution by the beast. A lot of folks think, okay, well, that was just the Roman Empire persecuting Christians. Uh, you look at the prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 24 about his return, and they say, well, that was fulfilled in the book of Revelation. And if you recall that prophecy, you know, Jesus and the disciples are walking in Jerusalem. They're really impressed by the temple. And then Jesus said, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And the disciples ask Jesus, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And we know that Jerusalem was destroyed; the temple was torn down. Note, you know, that each throne, stone was thrown down in the year A.D. 70. There was a gruesome, terrible siege uh, that took place uh, when this. When, come on in. Come on. When uh, Israel uh, rebelled against the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire sent a general named Titus to come in and crush that revolt. Okay? And it was a terrible revolt and you know, a terrible war. So, in fact, the thousands died. Uh, you know, the, the, the beautiful temple that Herod built that took 40 years to build, you guys remember that? It took 46 years to build, and the whole thing was demolished. And during that time also, that the church was persecuted off and on. For instance, Rome, the city of Rome was burned in AD 64, and Nero uh, was supposedly responsible for it, but he didn't want to get blamed, so he blamed Christians, which was an easy scapegoat, because everybody hated Christians. He could just blame the people everybody hated. So he deflected the blame onto Christians, and even the Roman historian Tacitus said that Nero went too far in like torturing and persecuting people that everyone hated. So there was historical, serious persecution during the time of the Roman Empire. And the reason Christians were hated was they, weren't, they didn't fit in. Roman religion was pluralistic, so they conquered all these people all across Europe and Africa. They allowed their people, the people that were conquered, to keep their native religion for the most part. But they added something, and that was emperor worship. Emperor, that, that the emperor of Rome was also regarded as God. So, you know, that would create a conflict. Right? With Christians, right? Christians have a higher loyalty, right? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is ultimately Lord, King, and God over all, not Caesar. Caesar doesn't demand the, Lord, the highest loyalty of Christians. So, so Jesus is Lord versus Caesar is Lord, and that would often put Christians in the crosshairs of the Roman Empire. So, so the nice thing about this particular view, the Roman Empire view, is that it, it really helps us to understand the historical context of the early church. Uh, and as you know from the first couple chapters of Revelation, uh, Jesus writes, there's these letters that are written to the seven churches. So those are real churches during the first century, and they express Christ's care and encouragement. So that's the first view, Roman Empire, and that has something to bring to the table. The second view is the idealist, which I'll call the general principle view. And the idea here is that there's a general pattern of conflict that happens throughout the ages, throughout church history. 1 John chapter 2 says the Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come. And the Antichrist is just any figure that you know, exalts himself as supreme and demands worship. Demands worship. Um, 
And that ha- and the idea is that you know that's happened throughout throughout history. Right? There's people who have come that have demanded total loyalty, and the Christians have gotten persecuted as a result. But this view, this general principle view, is that what has happened will continue to be, that there's a continual conflict between light and darkness, between the righteous and wicked. And you look throughout church history, Christians have gotten persecuted. So that's the second strategy, the idealist or the general principle view. The third strategy is the futurist, the final crisis view. And that's the idea that, well, you know, Revelation is mainly about the future, the second coming of Christ. There's Christ comes, there's a crisis, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, the Antichrist coming, and it, it all climaxes there. Now, it's helpful to take all these different views and blend them together for us to understand this book. And what I propose is a fourfold fulfillment in the book of Revelation, that we can take all these views, blend them together, and learn from each one. So, number one, there's f- preliminary fulfillment during the time of the Roman Empire. Right? We see there is persecution and suffering, and Christians are called to endure and number two, we do see historical fulfillment. Right? The church has been persecuted throughout the ages. The church has suffered. The church is called to endure and, and be faithful to Jesus. And number three, current fulfillment. Right? A lot These things that are described in Revelation, elements of them, lots of them are happening even today in the church. And number four, final fulfillment. Even though they're happening today, there is a final climactic fulfillment that comes when Jesus returns. So, so I think it's best to to see Revelation in terms of a fourfold fulfillment. And we see that even in the intro of the book, uh, chapter 1, verse 19. Can someone read chapter 1, verse 19? Chapter 1, verse 19. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Yeah, so you see, even in that one verse, there's, there's kind of a, a, a fourfold horizon in, its, in the fulfillment of Revelation. You've got the past, present, and the future. You've got this phrase, things that are seen. You've got the vision of Christ, a message to the churches at that historical moment. Right? You've got the phrase, those that are. There's a pattern that happens throughout history that continues even until now. And then the phrase, those that are to take place after this. That refers uh, to the future, final future return of Christ. So, you know, that hopefully sets the stage for us to understand this book. You know, as we take a step back, uh, you know, there's, there's different aspects that are fulfilled throughout history. Uh, different aspects that repeat itself. And with that said, I want to go into the four C's of Revelation. These are four central, crucial themes that run throughout the whole book. Uh, I'll cover two of them today and two more next Sunday. So the first two are counterfeit and crescendo. Counterfeit and crescendo. So number one overarching theme is, is the idea of counterfeit. Now before we get into that, you have to understand that you know the number seven often refers to the number of perfection in Scripture. You've got the seven days of creation. Right? God created in six days, rest on the seventh day. Um, you also have the Trinity in the opening verses of Revelation uh, associated with the number seven. And the number seven, as a number of perfection, can symbolize God. Uh, let's, someone read chapter one, verses four through six. We look at the opening. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, 
the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us king a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so we see there's messages given to seven churches. There's the sevenfold spirit of God. And then we see Jesus Christ and the Father. So we see you know, all throughout Scripture, actually, number seven play a prominent role. So if seven is the number of perfection, we also see counterfeiting in the Bible. So we see the counterfeit to the Father would be Satan. So just like the Father, Satan tries to originate, tries to imitate. Turn o- let's turn over to Revelation chapter 12, verse 3. Whoever, ha- whoever gets there, let's go ahead and read it nice and loud. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Right. So we see here there's a sign in heaven with seven heads and seven crowns, seven diadems. And this dragon is an obvious reference to Satan, who is a, who is a counterfeit, who, who tries to imitate, uh, tries to be like the father, but isn't. Okay, so we, but we not only have the counterfeit father, we have the counterfeit son. So this is uh, the beast, or the Antichrist, the lawless one. So the, the beast, or the Antichrist, executes the plan of Satan, and is, in, in some sense, the image of Satan, carries out the plans of Satan. Let's look at chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. Flip over from 12 to chapter 19, Revelation 19, 11 and 12. This is a picture of the Son, Jesus. And I saw a heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Okay. So that's the son, the real deal. But the counterfeit mm. is given in chapter 13, 1 and 2. And you'll notice a lot of parallels there. So we turn over back to chapter 13, 13, 1 and 2. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on his heads and the beast that I was like a leopard and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears and his mouth was like a lion's mouth and to it the dragon gave his power and his his thorns and great authority. Right. You see a lot of parallels there with the name, with the diadem and crown, and in, and in terms of, you know, the dragon, Satan, is giving this beast his authority. Okay? And it's the beast that will be carrying out the persecution of the church, a persecution that happened during the time of the Roman Empire, that has been repeated throughout history, continues now, and will happen once again in a final climactic way before Christ comes. 1 John 2.18 says the Antichrist is coming, and even now there are many Antichrists in the world. Mm-hmm. So you've got the counterfeit father, counterfeit son, and now you also have the counterfeit spirit, which is the false prophet, this other beast. And this false prophet bears witness to the first beast. 
And just like the Holy Spirit bears witness to Christ, the false prophet bears witness to the beast. Mm-hmm. And it, but instead of speaking truth, it's deception. Instead of working miracles, it's counterfeit miracles. Mm-hmm. But it has the authority of the first beast, just like the Holy Spirit has the authority of Christ. So let's look at let's look at the counterfeit Holy Spirit, that false prophet, uh, chapter 13, 11 through fourteen. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from the heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Right. And again, you see a lot of parallels, right? It's bearing witness to the beast, causing others to worship the beast. A lot of parallels with the Holy Spirit. But a counterfeit, right? Not the real deal. So you see the Satan, the beast, and the false prophet all form this counterfeit together. So if the Trinity is 777, right? Number of perfection. Then... What falls short would be less than that. So let's turn. Uh, you know, keep your finger there. Let's. Uh, someone read third chapter thirteen eighteen. Thirteen eighteen. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is six six six. So if you look at symbology of numbers in Revelation, it seems like that six 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 is really just. Uh, Counterfeit Trinity. Right? You got seven, seven, seven. The number of perfection. You got a question? Write it down, and we'll, we'll get to it uh, next Comment, week. Comment. Another question. Comment. Can we hold those? Because otherwise, we'll never make it to the end. Um, uh, write down your comment. Uh, so six, six, six. Number that falls short. Right. So the number that falls short of, of what is true, the true God, the living God. It's a counterfeit. But just like you have a counterfeit Trinity. Um, you've got the counterfeit people of God. So, so think about it. The bride, right? The bride of Christ is the church, the people of God, the, uh, the Lamb of God laid down uh, his life for his people. You know, the bride of Christ, the church. But you have a counterfeit bride in the book of Revelation known as the prostitute. Okay? And, then there's, and, and that prostitute uh, is a symbol of counterfeit worship. And that counterfeit, that false worship, if we're, you know, true worship is worshiping the true God, the living God, the triune God. You've got false worship that takes uh, you know, a multitude of different forms. And the false worship, specifically in the book of Revelation, can be summarized in, under these two headings, persecution and seduction. Uh, these are two sources of false worship. Okay? And I'll explain that here. Uh, number one, persecution. Right? Persecution comes from the beast. So... So the state, under the power of satanic influence, uh, as the counterfeit trinity, forces people to worship the beast and give their highest loyalty to the beast. I mean, think about the countries that persecute Christians and other religious people. They, they demand that your highest loyalty be to the state or to the ruler. Right? That's false worship. Right? Uh, so let's look at uh, chapter uh, 13, verses 4 through 10. 13, 4 through 10 to look at uh, the false worship. And they worshiped the dragon, 
for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and nation and language and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So here's the temptation for us as Christians. You know, there, you know, we don't experience it right now, but there are plenty of our brothers and sisters now that are experiencing this kind of temptation where they have to renounce loyalty to Jesus to save their life. But we remember what what our Lord said. Right? Whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for his sake, for the sake of the gospel, for our Lord's sake, will save it. And that comes, that testing comes in the time of persecution. We're tempted, God's people, we're tempted to save our life, but, we'll, but we would instead, of course, lose it. But if we lose our life for Christ, or lose our lives for Christ's sake, then, then we'll end up saving it. So the temptation comes through persecution and false worship, to worship something other than Christ. But the other source of false worship comes through the seduction of the prostitute. So if persecution is avoiding pain, then seduction is really the pursuit of pleasure. They're kind of the two sides of the same coin, avoiding pain and pursuing pleasure, because it's all rooted in me. What's best for me, what's right for me, what's comfortable and best for me. Let's look at 18 verse 3. This is uh, the, the seduction of the prostitute. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of their sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of their luxurious living. So we see the power of seduction comes in various forms. It comes in the form, the temptations of sexual immorality, mm -hmm. uh, as well as wealth. So sex and money. And those are two idols that we see quite prominent in this culture, even today, even now, just as we saw uh, in, during the time of the Roman Empire. So sex is a very powerful idol. It can take the form of indulgence, such as adultery or homosexuality or fornication or pornography. And sadly, pornography is an epidemic even in the church. Hebrews warns us to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But the flip side of that is also um, abstention. That people can, can try to find salvation simply by cutting off all these desires. That you can find salvation in legalism or asceticism. The idea that simply because I abstain from any form or, or just uh, if I cut myself off from all desires, from all the world, that somehow makes me better. 
Mm. Right? Mm. Um, there's also prudery, the idea of uh, the hatred of the body, right? That, uh, that the body is bad, the desires are bad. But scripture tells us that everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So, so there's different ways that you can fall off there. You can either give in to those sexual temptations and sexual desires, or you can completely say that those, those desires are all, uh, I mean, that sex is evil. Uh, either way, it can become an idol, because you're placing your trust and security in something other than Christ. But not only is sex an idol, um, like I said, you know, rejection of sex can be an idol. Uh, it can lead to pride and self-righteousness. But money itself can be a, is a prominent, prominently featured as an idol, and we see that all over Scripture. Right, even today, uh, the idea that greed, right, greed, more will make us happy. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, the flip side of greed is asceticism. Somehow, you know, if I abstain from the world, if I don't have any money or whatever, then that will somehow make me better, and that could lead to pride and self righteousness. And of course, money is a source of anxiety, right? and we're warned that. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things can choke out the word of the gospel and make us unfruitful. So those are the two forms of false worship. We see persecution and seduction. And we see uh, in the fourfold interpretation that these temptations, these, you know, this false worship is a, you know, has happened all throughout church history, starting from the time of the Roman Empire even until now. Right? I mean, as we saw earlier, the church was tempted to say that Caesar was Lord, or to, or even love the world and the things of the world. And then we see that general pattern of persecution and seduction happen throughout church history, continues even now, and, but there will be a final persecution and final seduction later on. Is it getting hot for people? A little bit hot. Uh, does someone want to like prop the door open a little bit, let in some air? Thank you. Huh? Yeah. Oh, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Alex, yeah. you're standing, so although you're usually you're short, you're taller than all of us, close to the heat. I'm, I'm closer to the heat. So. Yeah, I'm closer to the heat. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, here's the thing to, to realize about these counterfeit gods, about idolatry. Idolatry is ultimately self-defeating. Statism, you know, absolute loyalty to the state. At the end of the day, it self-destructs under its own oppression. So no kingdom that lives in rebellion against Christ can last forever. I mean, look, there's no Roman Empire today. There's no Soviet Union today. Right? Only the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of our God, will remain forever. And we see that uh, you know, self-preservation, right, to avoid persecution, or even indulgence to give in to seduction, that, that leads to self-destruction. And Christ warns us time and time again, you know, if we want to follow him, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. That's the, that's the path to life. Whoever tries to save his life will lose it. Let's look at 17 verses 16 through 17. Chapter 17 verses 16 through 17. same horns which you saw on the beast, these will beat the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into her hearts, into their hearts, to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, 
and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So the solution to false worship is true worship. To worship the true God and not the counterfeit gods of power, sex, and money. To find true redemption in the land and not in saving our own selves. Giving, giving ourselves over to the temptations and pleasures of this world. To find true security in God's throne. No matter how strong the state might appear to be, Christ reigns on high. He's coming back. He's still in charge. He's still sovereign. He still rules over all. God is still on his throne. We can find true security in that. To find true intimacy in Christ and in God's marriage. Later on in Revelation, we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we will be in the presence of God, that we will see him face to face, that we can find true intimacy, true joy in the presence of Christ that will be fully realized one day. We don't have to turn to false sources of satisfaction and intimacy. Uh, to find true wealth in God's wealth, like to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. And ultimately, to pursue a life of holiness, to be holy even as he is holy. Let's look at 18 verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. So that you will not receive any of her plagues. Very good. So, um, and, and just to wrap up this section here, the counterfeit section, uh, the beast and the prostitute all offer elements of truth. They're deceptive, right? They're not going to come to you like drink this vial of arsenic. It's not going to be that obvious. And the spiritual poison is going to be disguised in something that's going to look appealing. It's going to appeal to our human desires, right? And wisdom means we don't necessarily walk the path of pure rejection. Right? Remember, everything God has created is good. It's to be received with thanksgiving. Nor do we walk the path of pure acceptance. Right? Uh, discernment means we have to be careful. Uh, and that we, by being careful means we, don't, we aren't deceived by the beast or the prostitute. Power, sex, and money, they are in and of themselves not good or evil. They are, they are good gifts, but they're terrible gods. It's what you do with them. Right? Money in and of itself is not evil. Scripture says the love of money, that is the root of all kinds of evil. And just like sex or power even, those are, those are good gifts, but they can be twisted and become terrible gods. Okay, so that's, that's the first C in the book of Revelation, counterfeit. <clears throat> first C is counterfeit. So the second C that we're going to look at today is crescendo. Crescendo. Remember back to 119, we saw the phrase, what is to be? And in the book of Revelation, we see seven cycles of judgment that lead to the second coming of Christ. Once again, you see that number seven, number of perfection. The term is recapitulation. That means that a same basic sequence of events is told over and over again using different imagery, using different uh, imagery, signs, and descriptions. And this is a strategy used in prophetic literature. The book of Daniel, for instance, in chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, you've got Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He's got this dream of this huge image, this huge statue with the head of gold, chest of silver, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. Okay, now this image is a symbol of different kingdoms that will come on the world stage. 
Uh, the kingdoms that are all eventually crushed because the stone is cut and it crushes the statue and it's blown to bits, right? And that stone represents the kingdom of God, which endures forever. Okay? But then in chapter 7, five chapters later, you see four different beasts. Right? You've got the lion, the bear, the leopard, and a terrifying beast. And roughly speaking, those represent the kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And in chapter 8, again, you see two different animals, a ram and a goat. Now, you don't read these images in a sequential order, like there's going to be the four kingdoms of the great image, and then the four kingdoms of the beast, and then the two images in chapter 8. Right? They're all actually just talking about the same sequence of events in different ways, using different animals, di using different images. They're repeating it in a different way, so you get to see different aspects of it. And that strategy is the same strategy taken, I believe, in the book of Revelation. As you can see in the outline, we've got the seven seals, right? a sequence of, uh, of, of judgment and salvation. And you got number two, seven trumpets, seven symbolic accounts, seven bowls, seven messages of judgment on Babylon, the white horse judgment, and the white throne judgment. And these, these uh, seven different cycles of judgment and salvation uh, reiterate the same sequence of events, but telling them with different images. Okay? Uh, for instance, let's, let's look at a couple of these. Uh, let's look at the end of the seven seals. Six, verses 12 through 17. Let me read six, verses 12 through 17. Nice and loud. Hopefully we'll get it on the recording. Chapter 6, 12 through 17. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, and the, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And the images that you see here about the return of Christ are the same images used in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, given in Matthew 24, his description of the end times. Remember when disciples ask, you know, when are these things going to be and what are the signs of your return? And then Jesus describes things in this language. And in fact, let's look at that. In, so keep your place there in Revelation. Let's turn to Matthew 24, verses 27 to 31, to look at what Jesus says about his coming return. So let's look at Matthew 24, verses 27 to 31. Twenty-four, twenty-seven. Yeah, 24 verses 27 to 31. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, 
The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And Jesus is describing his second coming right here. And that language is used in Revelation chapter 6, the, the passage we looked right before. We see the sun turn to sackcloth, moon to blood, the stars fall from the sky, the skies rolled up like a scroll. The great day of their wrath has come. So that's clearly what we saw in chapter 6, 12 through 17. That's second coming language. And here's the important thing to know about when we see these cycles of judgment. Judgment for the wicked also means salvation for the righteous, vindication for the righteous. Those who are persecuted will be vindicated. God's people will enjoy final victory. Okay. So let's look at um, briefly here, uh, seven four, chapter seven verse four. And I heard the number of the seals, one hundred forty-four thousand, sealed from every tribe of the son of Israel. And here we see a symbolism used once again. Now there are cults out there like the Jehovah's Witnesses that say mm -hmm. that only 144,000 people will finally be saved. Mm -hmm. They're wrong. Uh, 144,000 is a symbolic number. It's symbolic, I believe, representing the complete number of the redeemed. And you can get that number from 12 times 12 times 1,000. You've got the 12 tribes of Israel under the Old Covenant who are saved, right? through a forward-looking faith, the coming Messiah, the, the promised one. And then you've got the 12 apostles under the new covenant. You know, again, they're representing the new covenant. And then you've got the number 1,000 representing the number of perfection, the number of completion. So again, if you understand these numbers not as a literal, okay, it's going to be only 144,000 saved, but, well, 12 tribes of Israel under the old covenant, and then 12 apostles in the new covenant, and then 1,000, meaning the number of perfection, will what, what we're seeing here is that there, there's a number that's elect from every tribe, language, nation, from Old Covenant and New Covenant, that will be brought to full and complete salvation. You know, through tribulation, there's a complete number of the elect that Christ will most definitely bring to salvation. Okay, so, that, so we just looked at the end of the seven seals. Let's look at the end of the seven trumpets. Uh, 11 verses 15 through 18. What's that again? What chapter? Uh, chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. Gary, did you get a handout? Yeah, yeah. You got, okay. All, all the verse references are in the handout, too, so you can review them later on. Chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And the nations rage, but your wrath has came. And the time for the dead to be judged, 
for rewarding your servants, the prophets and, and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Thank you. And so once again, we see seven, the, the second, second coming language. And we see similar language at the end of the seven symbolic accounts, the seven messages of judgment, uh, the white horse judgment, the white throne judgment. At the end of each cycle given, we see language that's, that's clearly the second coming. So there aren't, there's only one second coming of Christ, right? There aren't, Christ returns once again. He doesn't return seven times, right, in sequence. And that's, that's important because we see this, that there's a cycle that, um, you know, these, it's a description of the final return of Christ in power and great glory. It's told seven different ways. But as it's told, each time, you know, it's, it's more intense. It's more powerful. It's more vivid. And it's, it's, it's building up. There's a crescendo effect. Each cycle builds upon the previous cycle. And it ends in this giant tidal wave of glorious, righteous judgment and also glorious salvation. Okay, and so we're going to take a look at how the, it, it build, these cycles build on each other. And the, the, at the seven seals, which is the beginning, there's a commissioning of judgment with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Right? And those are the white horse of conquest, the red horse of war, the black horse of famine, and the pale horse of death. But, you know, even as this, these cycles of judgment come, and you know, judgment comes upon the earth, you know, there's no reason for us as Christians to fear. As we, as we saw earlier, we're called to endure because Jesus has the final victory. Heaven is certain, and all evil be, will be destroyed. So, so at, even as you read these accounts, and they're terrifying. I mean, they're, I mean, if you don't know Christ, I mean, this is some, some pretty it's, it's hard hitting, heavy stuff. Uh, there's, you know, this is not intended to, to cause fear, but but for us to just to remember that God is holy, God is good, and we are secure in Christ. Let's look at 7, verses 14 through 17. Chapter 7, verses 14 through 17. This is what God's people have to look forward to, even, as, even if we have to endure terrible persecution or even terrible tribulation upon the world. Chapter 7, verses 14 through 17. And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve them day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them or any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Yeah, so, so we can take comfort in that even as we read descriptions of tribulation and persecution. Like, okay, we, you know, God will be with his people. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. You know, we're going to be led to streams of living water. We're not going to hunger or thirst anymore. 
But let's look at some of these uh, acts of judgment of God. Let's look at uh, seven trumpets and you know the effects of judgment upon the earth. So let's look at uh, chapter 8, uh, verses 7 through 9. Chapter 8, 7 through 9. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Here we see a third of the earth, a third of the trees are burned up, a third of the sea turns into blood, a third of the living creatures, and a third of the ships are affected. But remember again, you know, we, we don't fear, right, because ultimately Christ reigns. Um, let's look at uh, 11.15, chapter 11, verse 15. This is the end of the trumpets. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and of this Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. So even at the even in the midst of that judgment, there's security and assurance that Christ reigns and he rules. But the seven trumpets are followed by the seven bowls, and there's a progression, there's an intensification of judgment. Uh, let's look at the first three bowls in chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of the corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the spring of water, and they became blood. Right, so... You see, there's a progression, right? It's not just a third of the earth, but the entire earth, right? Not a third of the sea, but the entire sea is turned into blood. And not just a third of living creatures, but all living creatures have died, right? It's, it's increasing in its effect. It's a crescendo. And then that pattern continues until it reaches the final climax at the white throne judgment. So let's look at 20 verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, 
he was thrown into a lake of fire. Fearful judgment for those who die in their sins apart from Christ. And we're going to end there. I just want to take the last couple minutes for us to just pray together as a group, just to give thanksgiving and praise to God for sending Jesus that we might avoid that judgment that's described in Revelation, to give praise and honor to our Savior who died for us, that we would avoid an eternal punishment. And also, pray, pray that God would give us strength to endure under persecution and the temptations of this world. So, we're just going to take the next couple of minutes. We're just going to we're just going to pray together as a class. Bill, can you start us off? Can you yes, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for sending Jesus. Uh, said over and over again. We don't take it for granted that He counted not robbery to come forty and two generations to save us. And I thank you for that. I thank you for this class. I thank you for the revelation there, Lord. Uh, that we we have the victory. The victory in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Bless your name. Father, we thank you for loving us so much that you decided, Lord God, to send us your one and only unique son. That he descended from glory, Lord God, became like us. Flesh and blood, Lord God, was born to die so that we could be born again to live for you. We thank you, Father, that you used him to absorb all of your wrath that was targeted for our backs. He diverted the wrath from us, Lord God, so that we can be eternally in your presence, Lord. We just thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you for sealing us, Lord God. And thank you that, that nothing so separate us from your love, Lord God. Not persecution, not death, no things present, no things to come, no height, no death, no anything in this world should be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we thank you and we celebrate that love, Lord God, that you have displayed upon us. God, help us to be grateful, to be thankful, Lord God, every day that we are above ground, thankful for what you have done for us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Lord, would you just uh, strip any fear from us, Lord, as we consider these tribulations, Lord, that we trust in you, we thank you that you are trustworthy, and we thank you for your promise that you wipe away every fear, Lord, that we will be under your shelter, your protection, Lord, we just thank you for the hope that we have in you, Lord, and by your grace, we can we give you thanks for another day, O Lord, to lift your loving Son of Jesus unto you. We thank you for the sacrificial love that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, your only begotten Son. We thank you for the birth of your loving Son, O Lord. We thank you that you've given us your word, O Lord, that we may glorify you, magnify you, O Lord, that will bring structure and guidance to our life, O Lord. We ask you, we thank you. To continue blessing our pastors and the men of God, O Lord, who share your word with us, O Lord, and inspire us, O Lord, to the stand knowledge and wisdom of your word, O Lord. Lord, we thank you for another day. We thank you for your goodness and mercy in the loving Son's name, Jesus. We pray. Amen, amen, amen.
Father, I thank you for showing us what your will is and uh, that you're going to uh, be uh, fulfilled in, in your judgment. Um, I keep thinking about how you showed Abraham and spoke to Abraham telling him about Sodom and Gomorrah. So I thank you for showing us what what will happen in Jesus' name. And thank you for Pastor Alex and we ask you to bless him, his family and the rest of our pastors and we thank you that he took the time and, and with the knowledge and wisdom given by you to teach us this revelation of the end times O Lord and it strengthens us in you so we give you thanks for giving us knowledge and heart and the desire for your word in your loving son's name Jesus we pray Amen Thank you, Father, that you've given us a kingdom that cannot be shaken, even as all the kingdoms of the earth are, sh are shaken, are blown to bits, ultimately, in light of your eternal kingdom. Lord, we have an everlasting kingdom, an eternal home with you one day. And so, God, help us by your Spirit to offer to you acceptable worship with reverence and awe, knowing that you are a consuming fire consuming fire of blazing holiness and righteousness. A righteousness that was fulfilled in your Son, Jesus Christ, who laid down His life for each one of us who have come to Him by faith so that we might be rescued from the lake of fire. We might be rescued from those tribulations and we might be brought safely home to the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. We worship You. We thank You for that. Lord, we don't deserve that salvation without but somehow in your love, you've given it to an unworthy people. And all we can do is say, God, we, we praise you, we honor you, and we want to live our lives for you. We want to live a life of holiness. We want to glorify you in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.